God, we are thankful that you are, in fact, a God who speaks. That you are not deaf and dumb like the idols of the nations, but you are alive, you are kind, and in your kindness you've given us your word, and we thank you for it. We know that every word of it is inspired and useful, and so we pray that you would make good use of it here in our midst today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Kings chapter 20. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order. Because you are going to die, you will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, Prepare a poultice of figs. They did so and applied it to the boil, and he recovered. Hezekiah had asked Isaiah, What will be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I will go up to the temple of the Lord on the third day from now? Isaiah answered, This is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will show, will do what he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps, or shall it go back ten steps? It is a simple matter for the shadow to go forward ten steps, said Hezekiah. Rather have it go back ten steps. Then the prophet Isaiah called upon the Lord, and the Lord made the shadow go back the ten steps that had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. At that time, Merodach, Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and gift because he had heard of Hezekiah's illness. Hezekiah received the messengers and showed them all that was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, and the fine oil, his armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, What did those men say? Where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came from Babylon. The prophet asked, What did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood that will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? As for the other events of Hezekiah's reign, all his achievements and how he made the pool and the tunnel by which he brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Hezekiah rested with his fathers and Manasseh, his sons, as king. When are you at your best? Perhaps that's a good question to consider. When are you at your best? Some of us are at our best under pressure when the heat gets turned up and others of us are at our best when we have time to think and when we have time 
to process. Some of us are at our, at our best in front of crowds. Some, some prosper behind the scenes. When is it that you find yourself to be at your best? And then conversely, when are you at your worst? Maybe for some of us it's around a certain group of friends, or others of us maybe it's when a certain substance is involved, or when we're by ourselves in front of a, a screen of one kind or another. Maybe for us we're at our worst when the, the money is coming in and it's just everything seems to be going just fine. When is it that you are at your worst? This morning we have opportunity to see Hezekiah at his best and at his worst, and I suspect that most of us, or perhaps all of us, will be able to relate with Hezekiah, both in his weaknesses and, Lord willing, in his strengths as well. It is, is a tale of two Hezekiahs. Or maybe it's really just a tale of one Hezekiah who has com- a competition within his heart between the flesh and the spirit, as Paul says we have on our own hearts. We see the weakness of Hezekiah's flesh, and we see the strength of the Spirit of God at work within him. And when all is said and done, when we come to the end of Hezekiah's life in chapter 20, we'll recognize that Hezekiah is no doubt a sinner in need of a Savior. But we will also recognize very plainly that Hezekiah is a saint who belongs to the one true God. So the first 11 verses, first 11 verses begin our time with Hezekiah at his best. Now again, we should recall that the author of Kings generally takes things in chronological order. This king lived, and then he died, and then this king lived, and then he died, and this king lived, and then he died. Generally, there's a a chronological ordering of the things in the book of Kings, but it is not always so. Sometimes things are taken out of chronological order so the author can make theological points. The author is is much more concerned that we understand the the theological points of his writing than he is that we understand the chronological timeline of the book of Kings. And so this is one instance. As we come into into this passage, chapter 20, we're actually jumping back in time to the midst of chapter 18. And as we looked at chapter 18, we saw that Hezekiah was rather in some, some deep trouble. Because there, Hezekiah was holed up or, or, or caged up, in the words of Sennacherib, like a bird in the city of Jerusalem. And his city was surrounded by the Assyrian army. This, not just any old army, this is the most powerful army the region had ever seen to date. He's holed up in this city, the Assyrians are surrounding the city, he has no army left. The food stores are running low, and he's being threatened with death. His people are being convinced that if they would just come out of the city and leave Hezekiah to die on his own, then everything would be okay for them. And so then we see that not only are things not going well in that sense, but things are even worse than they appeared to be in chapter 18, because Hezekiah is sick and near to death. Things are not looking good at all. And then they begin to look even worse when Isaiah the prophet comes, and we read that in verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, went to him and said, this is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Sometimes prophets bring good news. Sometimes not so much. This is one of those times the prophet Isaiah says, write write your will, sign it, have it authorized, pick which of your sons is going to be king after you, put put all your house in order because you are going to die. Now now this, even this is a grace. 
Many people are not allowed the opportunity to know that they are going to die, to put their homes in order, to be able to say all of their goodbyes. And so even this would have been a grace to Hezekiah, but Hezekiah is not willing to, to go down without a fight, we might say. He's not willing to accept it. His city is surrounded. All his people are in danger of death or exile. He himself is surrounded. He himself faces death. And he's not willing to go down. And so Hezekiah has audacity. He has the audacity to pray that maybe, just maybe, Lord, maybe your word will not yet have been set in stone. And we read about that in verses 2 and 3. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. I think that many of us would be very uncomfortable praying, praying the prayer that Hezekiah prayed. Remember, O Lord, my faithfulness. Remember how I have walked before you in wholehearted devotion. We, we tend to think in, in categories of black and white. We're a sinner and we don't do anything good. But, but Hezekiah has a much more nuanced theology than we do. Hezekiah recognizes that because he is God's king, because he has tried to serve the Lord, because he is, is filled with the Spirit of the Lord, that he has, in fact, tried to walk in faithfulness. He's not wicked like his father was. He's a good king. And lest we think that he's being proud, doesn't it, isn't it true that the Bible says that he was a good king? And so he appeals not to his perfection. Hezekiah knows that he's not perfect. But he says, I, I'm not a wicked king. I've tried to do what's right. I got rid of all the idols. I tried to rid the people of idols. I, I took a lot of hits to get rid of those idols. I, I opened your temple for worship again. I have tried, though I have failed sometimes, I have tried to do what was right. And then he weeps. Wouldn't you? He turns to the wall and he weeps. He weeps because he's going to die. He weeps because it appears as though the city of Jerusalem is going to perish. He's not the first person in the Bible to weep, and he wouldn't be the last person either. Isn't it true that the great King Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem as it was going to be destroyed in the face of his own death sometime later? So things are not looking very good for Hezekiah, but then all of a sudden things seem to change quite surprisingly as we read in verses 4 to 7. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, that is the court between the palace and the temple, before he had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people. This is what the Lord, your father David, says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, prepare a poultice of figs. They did so and applied it to the boil, and he recovered. The bad news is removed, and good news is given in its place. Not only is Hezekiah not going to die, but he's going to be rapidly healed. And not only is he not going to die, but he's going to have life for 15 more years. And not only is he not going to die, but his city is going to be spared from the Assyrians. Before, just moments before, everything was death and destruction, and now everything is life and victory. And where's the turning point? 
Where is, it, where is it that it turns from death to life, from defeat to victory? The turning point is Hezekiah's prayer. It is when Hezekiah prays, when he weeps, when he pleads to the Lord for that salvation that he turns from death to life. This might seem strange. It might seem quite strange. I mean, after all, Hezekiah had just heard that he was going to die. He'd heard it from the prophet of the Lord, no less. Who was he to think, who was he to think that God might change his mind to speak? Who was he to pray? It seems almost illogical. Until we recall, of course, that God tells us to pray. And that God is the God who answers prayer. And there is a mystery to prayer, isn't there? Does God know the end from the beginning? Yes, He does. Does God ordain all things that come to pass? Yes, He does. All, those, are, those things are all true. But does God also command us to pray? And does God answer our, praise, our prayers? Yes, of course that's true as well. The question often comes up, why pray? If God already knows what's going to happen, if God has already decreed from the beginning what is going to happen, well then why pray? And often that question is asked most often, I think, by Reformed people who have a, a deep and rich understanding of the sovereignty of God. But I think there's a, a sad irony in that, in that when we understand that God is sovereign over all things, we ought to have a deeper appreciation for prayer because it means that God can do all things. And if God has commanded and ordained prayer, and if He has said that He is going to answer prayer, then we ought to trust that in His sovereignty, He is going to do what He says he do, do, what he said He's going to do. And if God says He'll answer prayer, do we not take Him at His word that He will answer prayer? You know, we, we might ask uh, some, a series of questions to help understand this. Did God know that Hezekiah wasn't going to die? Yes, God knew that Hezekiah wasn't going to die. Did God know that Hezekiah was going to pray that he wouldn't die? Yes, God knew that Hezekiah was going to pray that he wasn't going to die. And did God use Hezekiah's prayer to grant him 15 more years of life? Yes, God used Hezekiah's prayer to grant him 15 more years of life. And is it true that if he hadn't prayed, Hezekiah would have died? Yes, it's true that if he hadn't prayed, Hezekiah would have died. You can hold all those things together, while any one of them contradicting the others. And just because we don't understand it completely doesn't mean that it can't be true. In fact, if we had a God who is everything that he did, we could understand entirely he would be a miserably weak God. And so God both ordains prayer and uses prayer, though he knows all things. God uses prayer as a means to his ends. And we see a bit of this in, in verse 7 as well. Uh, could God have just waved his divine hand, so to speak, over the boil, waved his divine hand over, over Hezekiah and made Hezekiah well. Well, of course he could have. He could have just said, Hezekiah, be well. Just like Jesus said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. He could have just said it, but that's not what he did. Instead, he had Isaiah prepare a, a poultice of these figs, and they placed it on the boil, and he was healed. God used the poultice as a means to the end of healing Hezekiah. Did God need to use the figs? No. Did God choose to use the figs? Yes. And so that's what in his wisdom he has done. But when we come to the end of verse 7, Hezekiah is not out of the woods yet. 
he, he's still sick. And he hasn't waited for these three days to go up to the temple and to find his full healing. He has to wait those three days. When you're on death's doorstep, three days can seem like a very long time. And so we read this in verses 8 to 11. Hezekiah had asked Isaiah, what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me? And that I will go up to the temple of the Lord on the third day from now. Isaiah answered, this is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps, or shall it go back ten steps? It is a simple matter for the shadow to go forward ten steps, said Hezekiah. Rather have it go back ten steps. Then the prophet Isaiah called upon the Lord, and the Lord made back the ten steps that had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. Hezekiah asks for a sign. That in and of itself seems rather bold as well, but remember Hezekiah's father Ahaz, who was a wicked, wicked king, perhaps the worst of the kings to date, his, his father had been offered a sign by the prophet Isaiah. He had been told to ask for a sign, and he said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test in some kind of, of faithful false piety. But here, here Hezekiah jumps the gun. He, before Isaiah has a chance to offer a sign, Hezekiah says, look, I'm not like my father. I want to ask for a sign. Show me a sign that says, at the end of these three days, I will go to the temple and I will be healed. And Isaiah says, very well, you have two options. One, the shadow can go miraculously forward ten steps. Two, the shadow can go miraculously backward ten steps. Okay, thinks, well, going forward, that would be miraculous because it would go forward quite quickly, but shadows always go forward. Shadows never go backward. So give me, the, give me the backwards miracle. I want the, the greater of the miracles. And so he receives the miracle. The shadow goes back ten steps. It reminds us perhaps of when Joshua and the Israelites were fighting and they prayed that the Lord would make the sun stand still in the sky until they had fully defeated their enemies. The Lord can make suns stand still. He can even make suns go back. He can, in a sense, make time go backwards. And so, as the shadow peels back, it is a sign that the shadow of death has been peeled back from hanging over King Hezekiah. This is Hezekiah at his best. This is Hezekiah at his absolute best. Here we see Hezekiah in full humility, in prayer, and in full faith. And what happens? but he's healed. Precisely what he had prayed for, what he had humbly asked for, what he had faith to believe in, is precisely what happens. He's raised to life into fullness of life in those three days. Hezekiah would not be the last king, the last of God's kings, to lie under the shadow of death for three days' time and then be raised to fullness of life, would he? So Hezekiah was at his best when things were at their worst. When he had nowhere else to turn, and when he had nowhere else to go, and no other option, when he realized that he was most vulnerable, that's when Hezekiah was at his best, because that's when he was most faithful. But as we move into the next series of verses, till verse 19, we see Hezekiah at his worst, and we'll start in verses 12 and 13. At the time of Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, 
sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of Hezekiah's illness. Hezekiah received the messengers and showed them all that was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, and the fine oil, his armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. So Hezekiah is healed, and the Assyrians have been forced to run away. And then hearing about this, the king of Babylon sends some diplomats or some envoys off to Hezekiah to go and speak with him. And they, and they speak with him pretense of congratulating him over his getting well from this illness and, of course, over his, his breaking of the siege of the Assyrians against Jerusalem. And Hezekiah becomes a hero. He becomes a hero. He has done what almost no other king could have done. He has turned back the nasty, brutish Assyrians. His city has hope. His city has food. His nation is alive. His nation has been spared. He himself has come back from the brink of death. And Hezekiah becomes sort of an international superstar. And so this, this king, this king of Babylon, sends, sends his envoys to go and meet with this Hezekiah. And this is, in some sense, exactly what Hezekiah had prayed would happen. You go back to chapter 19, when Hezekiah had prayed that his people would be delivered, he finished his prayer and said this, Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from Sennacherib's hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. And the kingdoms of the earth have taken notice that Israel, that Judah has done what no other nation on the earth had done. And so the king of Babylon sends these messengers. But they have, of course, an agenda. They're diplomats, they're politicians. It's their job to have agendas. And so they come, and what they really want is they really want Hezekiah's help. Because the Assyrians had not only attacked Judah, but they had attacked everybody. And they'd attacked the Babylonians, and the Babylonians were subjected and they were oppressed by the king of Assyria, and they had begun to rebel. And, and Merodach Baladan, son of, ba son of Baladan, king of Babylon, wanted some help because he had begun to rebel against the Assyrians, and he wanted other nations to join in his rebellion. And who better to have than the Assyrian slayer himself, Hezekiah, on your side? And so he wants Hezekiah to come and be his ally, and Hezekiah seems all too willing to show off for his potential allies. You can just about imagine the tour through the city, through the temple, through the palace. Well, there's my gold. There's my silver. Oh, look, that oil is very costly. Here's all my soldiers, my spears, my swords. Look at those. Those are really nice Really nice shields. Look at how great I would be. Look at how great a help I could be to your cause. just makes you want to shake your head, doesn't it? What a fool. You, you want to take Hezekiah and shake him and say, Hezekiah, remember that time when you were almost dead? Remember that time when there was nothing you could do? Remember that time when you had no hope and no army and no food and all you could do was pray? Remember who it was that really saved you? Was it you? No, it wasn't you. Was it your swords, your army, your spears, your gold, your silver? No, none of that worked. You were saved by your God. What does Hezekiah do? He should have said, you don't want me. You want my God. He's the one who can beat the Assyrians. 
But instead, he showed them everything he had, all of his wealth, all of his power. He strutted around like a peacock. And in this moment, he left behind his prayer. He picked up his pride. The prayer led to his salvation. Pride would lead to his destruction. But thankfully, the prophet is there to kind of bring Hezekiah back down to earth a bit. We read that in verses 14 to 18. Then Isaiah, the prophet, went to King Hezekiah and asked, Where did those, what did those men say? Where did they come from? From a distant land. You can about hear the giddy King Hezekiah, can't you? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They, they came all the way from Babylon. They came all the way from Babylon to see us. They came all the way from Babylon to talk to me. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood that will be born to you will be taken away. And they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That, with a great thud, Hezekiah comes cratering back to earth. He realizes his foolishness as the prophet Isaiah reminds him, you did not save you. God saved you. And the same God who saved you and kept the Assyrians away from you is the same God who will bring your country to its knees again. And allow the Babylonians, these very same people you thought were going to be your friends, to be the enemies who come finally, capture this city, and cart its people, including your own offspring, away to their destruction. The well-known proverb, well-known proverb, right? The pride comes before the fall. The proverb actually says pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. So it is in the case of Hezekiah. When he was humble, he did well. When things were at their worst, he was at his best. When things were at their best, he was at his worst. And the prophet says it's going to be all downhill from here. And Hezekiah has a very strange response, very difficult response to understand in, verses in verse 19. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. Would that be the first thing you've thought to say? if you had received that prophecy. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. Will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? There are really two ways to understand that. The first thing that Hezekiah has become just a, a, a very self-centered, selfish man. As long as it doesn't bother me, it's going to be fine. But I don't really think that's where Hezekiah is at. That doesn't seem to be in line with the humility of Hezekiah's heart. But instead, I think he says, when the, he says, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good. I think he means to say that what you have said is right. And I understand that I have sinned. And that God is just to do what he has said he's going to do. And then he says in his heart, yet God has still been gracious to me. I, like Solomon before me and like David before him, I will not live to see the worst of the effects of my own sin firsthand. So that's the end of Hezekiah. We read then in verses 20 to 21 a summary of his reign and the end of it. As for the other events of Hezekiah's reign, all his achievements, 
and how he made the pool and the tunnel by which he brought water into the city. Are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, succeeded him as king. Hezekiah is a good king. Not a perfect king. Far from it. But Hezekiah is a good king. The most notable accomplishment, the most notable accomplishment of his reign was that this great Assyrian army came against his city and they didn't succeed. And one of the ways in which Hezekiah succeeded in sustaining the life of his city until the Lord would rescue them is that he recognized ahead of time that if this city is going to be attacked, we're going to need water. You can store up years and years and years worth of food, but you can't store up years and years and years worth of fresh water. And so Hezekiah undertook this great, this great engineering feat. There was a spring outside of Jerusalem some ways. Jerusalem's on, on a mountain. There's no springs up there. So he finds this spring, and he blocks up its normal path. And then he had dug one side to the other through the very heart of the mountain a 643-meter-long channel to move water that would naturally go away from the city into the city. It seemed to be so unrealistic that this could be done in the ancient world that it was thought to be a myth or a fable, something that had been added to embellish the record of Hezekiah until in the year 1880 they found the tunnel. And you can still go and see it today. He was a great king. But he was at his greatest when things were at their worst because that's when he was most humble before God. Another proverb, Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Isn't that Hezekiah's attitude when the Babylonians come? Who is the Lord? The Lord Jesus very, I think, wisely teaches us to pray this. Give us this day our daily bread. We are at our best, I suspect, much like Hezekiah, when we recognize our dependence upon God. When we recognize face to face how it is that we are in desperate need of God. When, when we come into those moments where it becomes most clear, of course it's always true, isn't it? It's always true that we are entirely dependent upon God. But sometimes we feel it more. Sometimes we see it more. And in those moments when the disease diagnosis is, or is given or, or when the job is lost, in those, in those most desperate situations, we instinctively turn to God. Because what do we realize in those moments? Because there is nowhere else to turn. Just like Hezekiah, when he rolls over on his bed, faces the wall, and prays. Where else was he going to turn? There was nowhere else to go in that moment than to go to the Lord. I think there are plentiful applications to be made to a generally wealthy group of people like ourselves. I think perhaps we make a good application of this to the human heart and to the human soul. It is not until we become like Hezekiah that we can be saved. It is not until we recognize how similar we are to Hezekiah in his desperation that we can really understand our need to be saved. But the word of the Lord came to Hezekiah and said, you're going to die. And the word of the Lord comes to us as sinners and says, sinners deserve to die. 
Sinners deserve the judgment. And no matter how far you go and no matter what you do, you are never going to escape. No one can outrun God. Didn't Jonah find that? No one can outrun God's word. No one can outrun God's justice. And so what did Hezekiah do? When the the announcement of death came to Hezekiah, he turns and he prays. All of Hezekiah's greatest moments came through prayer. And when he prays, then death turns into life. Isn't that true for us? That when we come into our most desperate moment, when we feel ourselves laid bare and naked in our sin before God, and we see that God is faster than us, and there is nowhere to turn, no one who can save, no one who can do anything except the Lord, then we turn to God out of utter abject humility, just as Hezekiah did. And just as Hezekiah was saved, so too we are saved when we turn to God and ask for salvation. Ralph Davis, the commentator on Kings, says, It is when Scripture makes us tremble that we are actually the safest. We are safest because then there is no pride. But there is only humility. There is only in that moment a recognition that all we need God has, and God has alone. And we have a much greater need than Hezekiah did. We have a greater need than to be given 15 years life. We have a need to be saved from the fires of God's wrath. And we have a need to receive much more than 15 years of life. We have a need to receive eternal life. But the same God who gave Hezekiah 15 years of life when he prayed will give to the humble one who comes to him asking eternal life, give him eternal life. Hezekiah died and he was gone. But not the good king. Hezekiah was a king, a good king who died, but he was a king who needed a savior. But one day another king would be born from Hezekiah's own line. Another king would be born who would also himself die. But he would be a king who had no need of a savior. In fact, he himself would be the savior. And in that king's life, and in his death, and in his new resurrected life, is the power of eternal life. And those who turn to him in weeping humility and pray, asking for eternal life, will receive what they have asked for, just as Hezekiah received what he asked for. And that king, of course, is Christ. Let's pray. Father, we find it most uncomfortable when we come to the portions of your word that are most convicting. those portions which lay us bare before your righteous eyes. And they would be the ones that would tempt us to despair. And they would certainly be the ones that would cause us to tremble. But just as with Hezekiah, you are near to the brokenhearted. And you give your kingdom to those who are poor in spirit.
And so we pray that as we are poor in spirit before you in our sin, humbled and even humiliated in our sin, we turn like Hezekiah. We turn away from all other people. And we turn to you. And we pray that you and you alone would save. You would prolong our lives. Not just for a decade and a half. But you would prolong our lives forever. That we may sing and dance we may rejoice and have freedom in your presence, in the presence of Christ who has himself the power of life. We pray, asking for this deliverance, for this power. We ask in humility, and we ask in the name of Christ, the son of Hezekiah, the great king. Amen.